when we first moved here, uh, I would meet with different people in the neighborhood, realtors, uh, principals of schools, just different people, and would ask them a series of questions. And one of the questions I would always ask them is, if God moved into Charlestown, what would change? And, and then when I would finish asking them all the questions, I would say, now, is there anybody else you think I should meet? And I ended up meeting like with 20 or 30 people, and it was really fascinating to hear what they would say. Inevitably, almost every time across the board, people would say uh, poverty, addiction, broken families, um, and, and different things like that. It, was just, it, would, it just became such a standard first answer, particularly when I met with uh, white middle and upper class people uh, that it's just across the board. That's what everybody thinks would happen, if, would change if God moved in the neighborhood. And I was hanging out the other night with a friend and I asked him that question. If God moved in the neighborhood, what would change? He would describe himself as something between an agnostic and an atheist. And, uh, and he said the same answers. I knew he was going to say it even before I asked the question. Poverty, addiction, broken families. Awesome. And then I asked him, what about his life? If God moved into the neighborhood, what about his life would begin to change? And people like him, sort of white, upper, middle class people who live in our neighborhood. And he sat there for a minute. And this is what he said. This is the whole genesis of this series. He said, I think I'd want to know if there's meaning beyond success. I think there's a lot of people in our city and our neighborhood who want to know, is there meaning beyond success? He literally said, and not in this conversation, but another time I was hanging out with him. And he said, hey, I got it all. I got a beautiful wife. I got beautiful kids. We have a nice house. I got a good job. We take great vacations. I have an amazing career. And that's it, right? He goes, that's it. That's the whole thing. That's a great life, right? And he, the person I was, the, I was sort of eavesdropping, and the person he was with who was a Christian. He was looking for him to say, no, there's more. There's more. This guy knew that there had to be more. He just was, he's, he's not sure what the more is. And so... None of us wants to be average. None of us wants to live this life that's just good enough. And so the series is called Not Your Average, When You Have It All But You Still Long For More. I've done that. There's never been a steak dinner. There's never been a date with my wife. There's never been a a cute moment with my kids. There's never been a moment when we moved into a house we had just purchased where at the end of that, when we sat and it was over, we thought that was enough. There's something about life that always leaves us kind of wanting a little bit more. And so we're going to look at uh, Ecclesiastes. I didn't get the page number. Did anybody, does anybody have it open already? Uh, we're going to be in chapter one. We'll just start in chapter one. What you got? 616. Thank you. Man, you guys are getting good. That was faster. Um, it's about a guy. Uh, Ecclesiastes is basically has two people in it. Okay. The first one is a, a guy that Uh, they'll call him the preacher in our version of the Bible. Some other versions call him the teacher. The word is this Hebrew word. It just means, it says koholet. It just means like preacher, teacher, speaker, the person talking. And this person has everything. I mean, he has it all. And yet he still longs for more. Now, historically, this book is attributed to King Solomon, uh, who the Bible says was the wisest man who ever lived. The Bible also says that King Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So uh, he was probably exhausted and um, feeling like he was pulled in a thousand different directions, literally. And, uh, but it never says explicitly that it's Solomon. We don't know that for sure. Uh, maybe it is, maybe it's not. 
And then we find out in chapter 12, the last uh, six verses of the book, that there, it wasn't, it's the teacher, uh, the teacher preacher is talking, but somebody else is writing it down. There's an author who's writing this down. And at the very end, the author is going to conclude the book and say, now in light of what the preacher just said, these are some things I think we need to think or sort of come to conclusions about with this. And so let me just read a couple of verses from chapter one, and we're going to see the two big phrases that are in here, and then we're going to dive in really in chapter two here in a moment. So it says, the word of the preacher, verse one, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Boy, I've been there before. I felt the weight of that before in my own life. Skip down to verse 12. Uh, He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now you see in those six verses the two big phrases that are going to be over and over in this book. And there's this idea of vanity. Now this word, again, is kind of like the idea of the preacher teacher. It doesn't translate super well. We get vanity. Some other versions might say meaningless, uh, something like that. The, the, the real idea is like a vapor, like smoke. Have you ever tried to grab smoke? before like my dad was a heavy cigarette smoker and man he would smoke and I'd try to you know we'd grab at that and sort of fan it that's what this guy says life is like life is like vapor life is like smoke it's like you see it and you try to go grab meaning and and grab this amazing life and when you grab it it eludes you he says everything feels like vapor and uh unsatisfying it's like cotton candy uh, we had the Georgia National Fair in my county when I was a kid, and we would go. Fair food uh, is the best going in, and then like an hour later, you just want to die. It's like someone has rubbed battery acid on your face and your stomach, and the older I get, the less I can take. But I used to love cotton candy. My kids love cotton candy to this day. But think about cotton candy. You can eat and eat and eat and eat and eat, and 15 minutes later, you still are not full. That's what this guy says life can be like if we live it under the sun. 38 times he says life is vapor, life is futility, it's unsatisfying, it's like cotton candy, it's vanity. Then the other phrase he's going to use 29 times in the book is this idea of being under the sun. Under the sun, living our lives under the sun, as opposed to living our life from God's perspective sort of over the sun. And so if we looked at this guy's Instagram, do you ever Instagram stalk people and just look through all their photos? Anybody do that? Or is my wife the only one? <laughs> Natalie is the biggest Instagram and Facebook stalker ever. Uh, and she does. She's a master at it. She's like, babe, look what this person was doing in 2009. This is amazing, right? <laughs> um, so if you looked at this guy's Instagram or all of his Facebook photos, you would see uh, trips. You would see meals. You would see, I hate it when people take pictures of their food. Like, Robbie Marcella, 
all that guy posts is pictures of his food, uh, and it looks amazing. And so I'm, I'm both put out and jealous at the exact same time. So you would see trips and meals. You would see experiences. You would see, if you looked at his Instagram, you would see beautiful, uh, beautiful family. You would see a beautiful spouse or 999 other beautiful partners, maybe. You would see happiness, and I'm going to put air quotes of happiness. Have you ever seen somebody post something on social media and they're so happy, but you know how they are in real life and you're like, hey, that's not real. You would see success again with the air quotes. You would see possessions. You would see status. Uh, and it would all be taken either by a professional photographer or with one of those iPhones that's so nice and has the cameras so that it does, like if you're in the corner of the photo, you don't get your face that's sort of bent, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I mean, it would be like the most amazing photographs and we would, with the nicest cameras or the nicest, most professional photographer, and we would look and here's what would happen. If we looked at this guy's Instagram, we would be embarrassed, envious, resentful, maybe ashamed, and maybe longing for something more. But if this guy looked at his Instagram, he would feel like he's winning in life, and he would feel a sense of pride. But all of us, including this guy, would look at his Instagram, and we would all feel the weight of life under the sun, including him. Biblically, we would all feel the weight of life under the sun, including him. We would all think on some level, this is like cotton candy. This can't satisfy. It's like trying to grab at smoke. You can't, it, it cannot provide ultimate meaning. And so Ecclesiastes, I will be really honest, is hard to understand for three reasons. I'll give them to you real quick. You have to write it down. One, it's depressing. It can be really depressing. I'm going to be honest. Uh, it's like having Eeyore as a, as a narrator. You remember Eeyore? I learned something about Eeyore the other day. Did you know that Eeyore and Optimus Prime are the same voice? Yes. Yes. You did know that. That's amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. It's like Ecclesiastes, when you read Ecclesiastes, read it as if Eeyore is narrating it to you. It can be very depressing. And this guy has everything, but he's experimenting and assessing and yet left longing. Second reason it can be hard to understand is it seems like it contradicts itself at moments. It's not neat and linear. We want to read the Bible, and at the, at the beginning we start confused, and by the end, like, everything is nice and all our problems are solved. And Ecclesiastes is not that. It's not linear. It's not easy. It's not conclusive. It's not a God who has formulas. See, I grew up with a God who had formulas, and, uh, and so the third reason that Ecclesiastes is hard is because it's opposed to a simplistic, cliche, unbiblical theology. Cliche, biblical, bumper sticker theology is great until something really bad happens to somebody who we perceive to have been really good. Or until innocent Christians or uh, Muslims or Jews or whoever lose their life in a place of worship. And then all the cliches, or when horrible weather things happen. I remember, for example, when Katrina struck. And I remember hearing Christians say, oh, well, that's God's judgment on New Orleans. But the problem was, 
the hurricane didn't affect the places that were the most immoral in the city of New Orleans. It affected the most vulnerable and poor people who were actually the people that God most identifies himself with if we read scripture. And so there were no cliches in the wake of Hurricane Katrina and in a lot of tragedy. And so these ideas that faith fixes everything or good things happen to good people while bad things happen to bad people or following God is all prosperity and bliss and increase... The book of Ecclesiastes takes a sledgehammer to all of those fake ideas about following Jesus. And, uh, and so it's hard. It's hard. Like even in preparing this series, like there's parts of this that I'm like, ugh, it's depressing. I just hear Eeyore's voice reading to me. But here's the big idea. Scott, if you'll go to the first slide for me. This is the big idea of today and maybe of the whole series. Our biggest fear shouldn't be an average life, but an amazing, unsatisfying one. Our biggest fear shouldn't be an average life, but an amazing, unsatisfying life. So let's start in Ecclesiastes 2, and I'm going to try to move through this with some rapidness, but it's so good. Uh, This guy says in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself, but behold, this was vanity. And so he is going to tell you, uh, tell us four things that he started going through. The first thing he begins to try uh, to experiment to find some meaning of life under the sun is pleasure. This guy is a pleasure, uh, just uh, he's like a, 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 a crack addict seeking pleasure over everything else. The first thing in verse two, it says he went looking for his laughter. He wanted to laugh so much. Yeah. Have you ever just laughed until your stomach hurts and uh, you're just exhausted, your muscles feel spent from laughing? That's what this guy did. He said, I'm going to laugh and laugh and laugh. And he gets to the end of it and says, oh, it was vanity. In the same verse, he says, he went after pleasure. Maybe that's in, like an idea of sexual pleasure or maybe that's uh, food or the richest of everything. It's all about pleasure. My dad grew up very financially vulnerable And so he would buy two of everything. And my brother helped my dad move one time, and he was like, there's two sets of golf clubs. There's two griddles. There's two pots. There's two of every single thing, two of the same shirt. My dad would buy two of everything because he never knew when he wouldn't have. That's what this guy did. He went and he he sought pleasure. And then in verse 3 it says he drank a lot of wine, and he was pleasing the flesh, trying to find meaning in life from pleasure. He wanted to feel something. My dad, my brother said at my dad's funeral, he said, Dad would try to go... And, and just, he would do everything so much to try to feel something. And then the, the feeling scared him to death and he didn't know what to do with it. That's this guy. So this, uh, the author of Ecclesiastes, the preacher would say, whether you drink vintage whiskey or wines you can't pronounce the names of or BLs or you drink your liquor from nips, whether you vacation up at the pool at the top of the hill here at Disney or on another continent, it's still going to end up feeling like vapor. It's still going to feel like vapor. You can't, it doesn't, pleasure does not, it can't satisfy. So the second thing he goes looking for in verse 8, let me read this one to you. Chapter 2, verse 8, he says, I also, also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. The second thing he goes after is possessions. 
He, now, pleasure didn't work for him, so now he's just going to start getting stuff. And he goes after great works. He wants to build houses and build things and, and have stuff. And he wants to be entertained and he wants to be influential. And so he has a house and then he has a second house and he probably has a timeshare and he's got all these properties. And he says at the end of it, it did not provide meaning. And man, when I read this, I think about the people who live around me who are like little hamsters, just run, 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 run. And they get to the end of it and they're tired and they still don't feel like they grabbed anything. And, and I don't want to be judgmental. There's a part of me that does the same thing. Now, we're not like taking vacations to other continents, like collecting stamps in our passport. But there's something in me that wants to spend money or have an experience and then think at the end of it, it's going to satisfy my soul. And it can't, it can't do it for any of us. Um, and so the third thing he tries is status and wisdom. In verse nine, to, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, he says, So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. So everybody, every guy wants to be this guy. Every woman wants to be with, with this guy. This guy is Barack Obama, Bill Gates, Idris Elba, Princess, uh, Prince William, Cristiano Ronaldo, and the Dalai Lama all rolled up into one man. Like, he is literally all of those things. That's this guy. He has status, and he has wisdom, and he's generous, and everybody wants to go to his parties, and all of that. And the conclusion, he says in verse 10, And whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all of it was vanity, and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So he comes to two conclusions. I tried everything. I was rich enough to try every single thing. There was nothing I didn't try. And at the end of it, it was all vanity. And the thing I walk away from that with is if the richest, wisest, uh, most relationally co co uh, connected person ever did all of those things, and that's his fate, that's the fate of the richest, that would also then be the fate of the poorest and the fate of the most average. I like to think we're an average family, you know? We're not pretentious. We have more than a lot of people. We have less than a lot of people. At the end of it, if, I, if God gave me everything my heart desired, and if God gave you everything your heart desired, you would end up at the same place. You would try it all, and you would find it's like vapor or like vanity. And so, Scott, if you'll go to that next slide. Um, I love this quote. The world does not contain the key to itself. It can only be found in God. That's what he finds. The world, cannot, the world does not contain the key to itself. The key to the world, the key to meaning is only found in God. So what do we do? I think we do four things. One, we deny and distract. We keep collecting, keep striving, keep achieving, keep posting on social media the results of us doing that. If I can, like, if I can just uh, convince everyone that I am happy, we're a happy family, we have nice stuff, whatever, then people will think. And so we keep... Uh, denying to ourselves that we don't feel the, the tension of the vapor, and we have people around us who feel the tension of the vapor, They're and then we just stay distracted. Just go, 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 go. I want to see, I am struggling with FOMO. I want to see Avengers Endgame. There are no tickets in New England 
to see this. My seven-year-old wants to see it really badly. He can't understand why his dad didn't buy tickets a month ago. I don't understand that either. And uh, we can't get it. There is part of me that is dying knowing that the entire planet is watching Avengers Endgame this weekend, and I am not. And, uh, and the planet is not actually, in fact, doing that. But there's a part of me that just wants to be, I've got to do that. I've got to go. I've got to deny this, this feeling in me that feels like I have to go see that movie this weekend. Like, what is that? Nat told me, she's like, why can't you go see it next weekend? I was like, because I got a trip I got to take. And then, uh, and she was like, well, we can go see it after that. There is something in me that wants to just be busy and distracted and not deal with. What is that FOMO, that fear of missing out that I'm dealing with? So the second thing I think we do is we deceive ourselves. I hate cloverleaf exits. I don't understand how people don't die and mass on those things. The one at 93 and 95, like chasing and chasing and chasing and trying to uh, deceive ourselves that this stuff is going to provide meaning is like riding on a cloverleaf exit. It's like going uh, 93 north and wrapping around like you're going to go 95 south and then wrapping around like you're going to go 93 south and then wrapping around like you're going to go 95 north and just doing the same process over and over. That's what a lot of people are doing. It's like because Oh, we went somewhere because we had a lot more mileage on the odometer when in truth we didn't go anywhere. But we tell ourselves, man, we went, we were fast, we, we got miles to show for what we did. It's vapor. It's self-deception to think just because we were going that we actually got somewhere. And deep down we know it doesn't satisfy and it's vanity. So the third thing we do, like, this, uh, like the preacher, is we despair. And verse 20 says, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. We go and we go and we go and we end up feeling this existential chaos. And I've felt that before. Maybe you have as well. And I know that people in our neighborhood and in our city feel that, uh, that results from climbing the ladder of success and getting to the top and finding that we lean the ladder against the wrong thing. It's a lot of people. We climb the ladder of success. We are higher, we have made it further than our parents or our neighbors or our friends or whatever. We succeeded. We got there faster. We have more money in our bank account. And when we got there and we got there and we realized, you know what? I leaned the ladder against the wrong thing. And that leads to a sense of despair. That's what happens to this guy. He despaired. And so the, and that's what was going on with my buddy that night, having uh, a drink with him, hanging out with him, was him saying, I just want to know, after everything I got, what does it mean? What does it mean? And then the fourth uh, thing that we can do, the only option, I believe, that is going to provide lasting meaning is that we would shift our perspective. Scott, if you'll go to the next slide for me. That we would stop looking under the sun and start looking above the sun. That we would stop looking under the sun, look above the sun, and look to Jesus and see life from God's point of view and align our life with him and enjoy life with the right perspective. I always read this book, to be honest, until recently and just heard there's no meaning under the sun. There's no meaning under the sun. And it's really depressing. But we forget that what he wasn't realizing at this point is there's life above the sun. There's life above all of this. 
and meaning and hope and everything else, but it's only found in Jesus. And so we have to shift our perspective. C.S. Lewis said, I think I have a slide of this, if you'll go to that one. We're moving through them now. Um, He said, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. If you shift your perspective, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. And we feel it. So our biggest fear shouldn't be an average life, but an amazing, unsatisfying life. The first way to a not-so-average life is a not-so-average perspective. When created things become ultimate things, we're always left wanting more. When created things become ultimate things, we're always left wanting more. And so let me just share a couple of things. No matter your scorecard, no matter the scorecard of our neighbors and our family members, if I, you know, we all have a scorecard for what success, like I don't know what your scorecard is. We all kind of think, okay, I would like to have X in the bank. I'd like to have X number of kids. If, if marriage is how you're going to do it, I, or I would love to have X number of grandkids sooner rather than later. I would rather have X number of vacation days. I would rather be at X place uh, with my resume and where I'm sort of topping out in my career. No matter your scorecard, if you're winning at life like the preacher, a life lived only under the sun will always be vapor and unsatisfying. We'll always want more. It's impossible. It's impossible. I'm reading this book uh, called To Obama. Have you seen it? It's about all the letters that people wrote to President Obama. And he would read 10 letters a day. Uh, he had a commitment to read 10 letters, letters a day as long as, when he was in America. Uh, it's really, it's a powerful book to see all the hope that people put into this man who is leading our country. And um, what a powerful man. I mean, arguably, uh, and maybe not even arguably, the most sort of rode in on this wave of optimism that this was a man who's going to fix our country's problems. And for all of that, uh, that he sort of carried into the office, I guarantee you he laid his head on his pillow at night and still thought all of that influence is vapor. We can't escape it. It's all vapor for everybody. And so we have to shift our perspective. We have to shift our perspective. The hope for our neighborhood is not that people would get more stuff. The hope for our neighborhood is also not that people would get less stuff. The hope for our neighborhood is that people would look at all their stuff and realize you can't grab it. It escapes us and that they would long for more. We have to shift our perspective and that is salvation. When we, the way we shift our perspective is we say, God, I have been living my life with me as the king, trying to climb the ladder like the preacher, and it doesn't work. And I feel broken by my sin. I can't measure up. I can't feel peace with you. And so I'm surrendering my rights to myself and giving my life for it. Now, listen, we say that in our neighborhood. Here's the problem. People feel that existential crisis of, does it have meaning? Does it have meaning? When we say, yes, it does. It's found in Jesus. People, like, you lose them. And so the apologetic, the hook, is our life. It's that we live differently and we live a compelling way. And so we, uh, salvation calls people to shift their perspective and stop living their life under the sun. And if you're a Christian today, I want to encourage you that we have to fight the constant gravitational pull to l- keep looking under the sun. 
Have you ever seen something like, uh, perfect example, you ever see a car accident on the highway and you're like, I don't want to look at that, I don't want to look at that, but the gravity of that car accident just pulls your head that way, right? We were walking through Manhattan last year and uh, it, was, um, it was the 4th of July and there was a woman who was choosing not to wear enough clothes in Manhattan. And, uh, and, and I didn't even, I, honestly, I didn't even see it. Natalie wanted to go to this, uh, she wanted to buy a Christmas ornament. We were touristing, and there's the 4th of July. We've got our kids walking through Manhattan at Times Square. I'm like, what are we doing here? I'm beelining to this Christmas shop so we can get out of the city uh, as fast as possible. And we get in the store, and Natalie goes, did you see that topless woman? And I was like, I did not. And she, and she was like, how did you not see that? I was like, I was trying to get your Christmas ornament. And, uh, but it was all she could see. It was all she could see. There's like this gravitational pull to look at things like, like that we shouldn't be looking at. And as Christians, there is a gravitational pull to keep our perspective stuck under the sun. And the way we orbit out of that gravity every time is the idea of discipleship. It's that we need the church. It's that we need uh, the Bible. It's that we need to repent of sin. It's that we need to live generously. See, generosity, every time that, for me, every time that I choose to live generously, I am cutting the nerve that would keep my head looking under the sun. Every time I confess sin to my wife or to a friend, and say, I was wrong, I sinned, will you forgive me as God has forgiven me in Jesus, I'm cutting the nerve that would keep my perspective under the sun. Every time you show up here on a Sunday or in a group or you serve, you're cutting the nerve that says that you can live faith without other people and without corporately worshiping God. There's this tendency to live under the sun, and discipleship is the process of shifting our perspective to live above the sun. Above the sun. And, and, and then to, uh, and let me tell you, my brother's a master of this. Um, it is a grace in, when we properly enjoy the created things in light of the creator. See, uh, there's not like this church life where we do churchy things, but then we can't enjoy a great meal or take a great photo or have a great vacation. Like when we properly enjoy the meal, the photo or the vacation, we're glorifying God and we're cutting the nerve that would say, keep your perspective here and just be religious. God would have our perspective shift and lift uh, above the sun. And so we acknowledge this, that life as a Christ follower is not necessarily easier it's not necessarily prosperous. It's not necessarily like this cliche, air quote, blessed life. It's not necessarily shielded from bad. We could go ask Christians in Sri Lanka today if we are exempt from sadness and brokenness because we follow Jesus. We're not. That's part of what this book is about. But life as a Christ follower is also not average and predictable and bound to be lived under the sun. It's what Jesus calls an abundant life, the highest quality life, and an eternal life. And as we said a few weeks ago in the If Only But Jesus series, part of living out a Christian worldview and thinking Christian is that we understand that Jesus has promised eternal life and meaning, and therefore we find abundant life today in him. So we get 
uh, not an average life. We get abundant life and eternal life in Jesus. Or as the poet Robert Browning said, a man's reach should exceed his grasp. Or what's a heaven for? Man, we're constantly reaching for something that can't be provided in this life. So let me give you, uh, shucks, I just closed my Bible. Let me give you one last scripture uh, sort of to close this up. In verse 26, here's what he says. For to the one who pleases God, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So how do we please God? Go church more? Give more away? Be good people? These are the things, when I ask my friends in Charlestown, what provides meaning for your life? These are the things I hear back over and over. Help the poor. Be a good person. You know, don't run over kittens with a lawnmower. I mean, whatever you want to put in there, like, whatever it is, like, listen, that is not the way we please God. I was talking with a buddy at the egg hunt the other day, and he was saying that he's done with church, done with church. And I said, no kidding. Um, I was like, but what about your kids? Are they done with church and God? And he was like, my kids, man, they believe in something. I said, yeah, what are you telling them to that? He said, I'll just tell them to be a good person. And I wanted to say, I know you. You're not a good person. (laughs) And I know you're not a good person because I'm not a good person. The way we please God is not by being good people or being religious or whatever. The way we please God is by trusting Jesus. Jesus was good. That's the message. Again, I'm telling you, it makes us sound crazy in this neighborhood. But this is the only way. We can't good our way. Goodness and religion is a vapor just like possessions and pleasure and everything else. And so there's a tendency. This is not in the notes. always dangerous. There's a tendency with Easter, with churches, um, to just try to like be cool on Easter. Just play it cool, make our church cool, our pastor cool, music cool. Uh, and if we just be cool, we can like people will come and follow us because we were the cool Christians. That is so silly and anti-gospel. Man, the life of pleasing God's a life completely sold out to Him, and trusting the Word, and proclaiming it boldly, and it is nonsense. We can't cool, like our, our neighbors, and maybe even us in here, will feel the gravity of that idea of smoke. But we can't cool our way and dumb that down. The only hope that we have is to say, look, I get it. I've been there. Jesus and his death and resurrection provide the meaning that you're looking for. And we can't water that down. Otherwise, we're just calling them to something else under the sun. Some other religious hoop to jump through or something else. It doesn't provide meaning. A life that pleases God is the only way to find hope in this life. Let me pray, and then we'll receive communion today.